Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) So I think we're going to start all of these episodes with laughter because... We make faces at each other when we are starting the recording. So I think that's just what's going to happen. I think we need to up our game and continue to try to make each other laugh. Let's bring it next time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome, friends. If you are here, if you're here, if you're here, (laughs) what the fuck? Oh, my God. Hello. Welcome. So you are here because you're listening, because if you weren't here, you wouldn't hear what I had to say. So if you would like to support the podcast, there are a couple ways that you can do that. We have merch. We have some cutie cute merch. You can get t-shirts, you can get stickers, tote bags, all kinds of like baby onesies, I think, even if you really want your baby going around in conversations with a wounded healer merch, like nothing would make me happier. And if you want some merch, you can go to tinyurl.com slash C-W-H-merch. That's tinyurl.com slash C-W-H-M-E-R-C-H. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which is soups helpful. We've gotten some lovely reviews lately, and I appreciate it so much. And I have to be honest, I've bugged some of my friends to do it. So if you're my friend and you're listening and you haven't made a review, I'm mad at you until you do one. So please do it. I'm not actually mad. And you can also, I think on Spotify, you can give us five stars. I'm poking like I'm giving stars right now, but you can't see it. And on Patreon, you could give us as little as a dollar a month. And every little bit helps because Andrea and her team at the Creative Imposter Studios are worth every fucking penny that we pay them. And it helps me to kind of offset a little bit of those costs. So that is patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer, or you can just search conversations with a wounded healer on Patreon. So, Anne, hi. Hey, Sarah. Hi. We just checked in on another recording, but how are you now since 14 minutes ago? I'm even more mesmerized by your hair. Mm, yeah. Thank you. So you all cannot see this, Mm-mm. but it is it is a rainbow mohawk and the gradient on it is perfect. Mm-hmm. So I am just staring at it. Yeah. Shout out to Carrie at Reverend Billy's Chop Shop in Lincoln Square. She is my new stylist because my old stylist moved to Schaumburg. So go to hell, D. <laughs> Yay, Carrie. Just kidding. She, she's actually, D is a Satanist. So she would be like, go to hell. Okay. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But yeah, that's how I am. How are you? Great. I am, I'm in pain actually. Yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting. I've, you know, since the podcast has existed, sort of been on this journey of healing my sexual abuse from childhood. Mm. And I am at an intersection right now where I've had 
more, I don't want to say memories because it's not like repressed memories that are coming back, but it's sort of this like knowing, like mm-hmm. something will happen and there will be this knowing inside of me that, oh, this is what happened. Yeah. And I've been working with this alchemist healer guy um, who is never going to be on the podcast. He's told me, he's like, I can't put myself out there. It's too dangerous. But I've been working with Daryl for a while and we've noticed that every time I have like I get another piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. I end up having physical pain mm-hmm. as a result. So there's something that my body is like working out and working through. And I'm trying to be really patient, but it is really frustrating to mm-hmm. be in pain or have injuries. And, you know, I'm doing everything that I can. But I also, now that I'm putting that part together, I'm realizing there's not a lot I can do except keep moving forward, you know? Mm. Man, this is so I've been learning a lot about pain science recently and a lot about how it ties to trauma, to events that happened, even if the the pain itself mm-hmm. is not directly associated with the event. Yep. And there's a pain scientist I follow, Alan T. Gordon, uh, who Ooh. has some really, yeah, maybe I'll try to get him on the podcast, but Ooh. highly recommend. He's got some really amazing him now. stuff about just the links between pain and anxiety and what's going on in your mind. And yeah, he's really great. I, yes, please reach out to him because that would be a really, I might like to join you for that one because that sounds really interesting. And for me, since I know you're a yoga person, so you know the chakras, for me, the pain manifests either in my second chakra, Mm -hmm. which is like all of the like reproductive organs, which makes sense Mm -hmm. with sexual abuse or around my throat chakra, like my Mm -hmm. shoulders big issue, which I think has to do with like not being able to talk about it or something Mm. like that being silenced. So Mm. interesting, huh? You know, anytime someone starts telling me about physical ailments, I immediately want to like dig and pry. And I'm like resisting Uh the urge to like, not even, you know, not diagnose, but like to draw correlations because this is what I do with my clients quite a lot. You've read Eastern body, Western mind, right? It is my jam. Okay, good. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that one is. And I'm just reading her other book. Yeah. Anadea Judith saying that for the notes (laughs) because I know they're going to pull that out. I just started her another book, the wheels of life, but I love that stuff. And I'm sorry to hear that you're experiencing pain but excited for you that you're able to kind of draw those different connections with different parts of your body. If that's an okay thing Mm -hmm. for you to hear. Yes. No, I I take that and I appreciate it. Yeah. Hmm. Should we talk about Elise? Yeah. I, I, I'm so excited to talk about Elise. So I didn't realize until I started listening to the episode and you were like, I have a bunch of your stickers. And I looked her up and I was I like, I have a bunch of, her oh wait, stickers. holy shit. Like I have reposted so many of her mm-hmm. illustrations and yeah. I have a bunch of her stickers as well. And I, so then I felt like I was listening to a rock right? star situation. It was like, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I, I asked her to be on the podcast probably in 2020, actually, I think. And she said yes. And then we just like, I don't know. I ask so many people and then things fall apart and then like they come back into my life for whatever reason. And so I asked her again and she's like, actually, yes, I just wrote a book. And so this is a great time for me to be on the Mm. podcast. And I was like, see, 
the universe works out in beautiful ways. So she's someone that I have appreciated. And it's funny, when I first started following her, I didn't know she was in Chicago because like, I don't know, you're just, you know, following people on Instagram, you don't know. And then she ended up working for a practice with a guy that I know. And I was like, oh my God, you're here. That's so cool. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. And and I, and I, so I didn't realize she was from Chicago and I had been following her and like, you know, I'd ended up with all her stickers and reposting her stuff. And so that was a nice, like, oh, sweet. Like when I move home someday. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And you, you guys talked about so many things that made me go, ah, ah. Like I had so many vocal reactions listening to this. And when you started talking about like TikTok diagnosing of ADHD, I like, I braced myself and I was like, right. And then you went, oh, and I was like, yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, duh. I mean, you know how I feel. (laughs) I just, I struggle so much with, and and, and because Mm -hmm. I work with a younger population Mm -hmm. generally, and I have people coming in being like, I think I have ADHD. And I'm like, why do you think that? Right. Well, TikTok TikTok told me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, cool. Okay. And the first question I always ask is, what is the purpose of you wanting a diagnosis? Because I I can't give you exactly. one. Exactly. Yes. And what is that going to do for you? And then let's go from there. Yeah. But mm-hmm. and hearing Elise talk about accessibility in different ways and hearing the way that you kind of make your classrooms more accessible. Yeah. It, it As an able-bodied person made me think about things in a very different way. And um, as mm-hmm. someone who doesn't have any learning difficulties and who has thrived in the Eurocentric teaching style. Mm-hmm. It, it just made me think about things very, very differently. So I was really grateful yeah. to hear her experience with that and for you to kind of opening that up. Yeah. I love opening cans of worms. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Yum. Well, sh- I just feel weird. I, I'm a weirdo this morning, especially weird. Shall I introduce Elise? Yeah. Yay. Okay. Elise Ruriani, she, they, is a queer femme registered art therapist, licensed professional counselor, illustrator, and person with lived experience. Their work aims to communicate information, provide tangible tools, and validate the human experience through engaging illustrations and designs. When Elise is not working, you can likely find her swimming in some body of water, making art with friends, or hyperfixating on some new idea. And I want to look. What's her book? I'm lo- I'm leaning over to find the book, The Big Feelings Survival Guide, which you can find anywhere you buy your books. We particularly love Bookshop.org over here. Oh, so yeah. I just want to shout out to something she did in her bio was say she's a person with lived experience because we don't get to like put that on our resumes enough and yeah, like so yeah. important. So love that. Thank you, Elise, for doing that. Yeah. Well, enjoy this killer conversation. Elise. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. OMG. I'm fangirling because I've been following you on Instagram forever. Yeah. (laughs) And were you always in Chicago? Since I've like been active on Instagram. Yeah. But I'm from outside Philly. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. It is so lovely to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. I'm super excited. Yeah. Well, I will have read your bio to everyone to tell them all of those, you know, whatever things that we say about ourselves that are very clinical and clean. But like, (laughs) how do you 
say who and what you are in this world? Yeah, yeah. Well, I often kind of phrase it as I feel like I wear a lot of different hats. Not that I really wear many hats <laughs> in real life. <laughs> metaphorical my hair hats. Is super cur- my hair is super curly, but metaphorical hats of, you know, being a therapist, an art therapist, but then also just being like an illustrator and artist of like my own art practice. And then some like advocacy work and like consulting and things like that. So they're all like very interconnected, but also separate at the same time. Yeah. What came first? I'm guessing maybe the artistry. Yeah, I'd say yeah, the artistry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I've been, you know, always been pretty creative as a kid and so have probably been making some form of art for like most of my life. When did you realize that you were good at it? It's a good question. I think like I think I was always told that I was creative. I think because mm. I was just like often doodling and things. Mm. And so that stuck out. But I, I do remember my grandmother once bought me a bunch of like markers and supplies because I was making these like geometric bookmark like designs Hmm. on these like bookmarks and she was like these are the best things ever and wanted me to continue making them and so I feel like that kind of sounds like oh people actually like what I make like it's not just you know me being a kid and people Mm. just entertaining it but yeah so I think like I just sort of started doing it and doing it more and people seem to like it so yeah I mean I have I don't want to accidentally close my computer but I have your I have three of your stickers, I think, on my computer right now. Oh, yeah. 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 I love seeing them, what people put them on, too. I've seen them on water bottles, on computers. Do I have? I don't have one of yours on my water bottle, but yeah. Yeah. And tell us your therapist origin story, because I feel like these are always juicy and yummy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I came to Chicago for grad school, and I knew I wanted to be an art therapist for a pretty long time, probably like I was like... 14 or 15, which is not super common for art therapy. A lot of because it's not as well known of a field. I mean, it's it's getting more known, but especially then, like, I think a lot of people kind of found the career later. And so they either, Mm. you know, they maybe were doing something else and then they learn about it. So they go get their prerequisites and then go to grad school. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the few who just was like straight from undergrad into grad school. But yeah, I just knew I wanted to do it. I had received art therapy uh, as an adolescent and it was super helpful to me and just gave me like another way to process things. I had a really hard time talking Mm. about my feelings like verbally. Mm. I remember like many a therapy session, I would just sit in total silence with with my therapist as a teenager. And so I think art gave me, I was already doing art on my own to like process my own experiences and then learning that art therapy was a thing. Mm. I was like, wait, this is really exciting. Yeah. So then I kind of had it in my head because I had been thinking about like wanting to do something in mental health, but also really liking art. And so it felt kind of like the perfect combination. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I think so many of us, it's either like people told us we should be a therapist because they're always telling us our problems anyway, and or Mm -hmm. the experiences we have being touched by a therapist or, you know, somebody Mm -hmm. else who believed in you in some way as a child, especially in moments when you're struggling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, I think like I've always been a very like sensitive person. And so I think a lot of people would come to me with things that they're struggling mm-hmm. with. But I also, yeah, I think apt to what this podcast title is of like mm-hmm. my own struggles and and working through those and and seeing kind of like the power in, especially in art therapy mm-hmm. and also having not great experiences with therapists. I think also in, a, in another way is a 
motivator of like I want to be a therapist that like I wish I had you know or like be able to like bring different things to the field so it's not you know kind of that both of like there's therapists where I'm like I want to be like you and then therapists where I'm like I don't want to be like you and both of those have motivated me to you know to do this work. I mean, it's no, it's an open secret that I started this podcast because I'm so pissed at therapists that don't do their own work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, do you want to share any like horror stories? Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> Let's gossip. A great, great question. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, like, I think sometimes the, the horror stories are like, even if in the grand scheme of the relationship wasn't bad like the the certain ruptures that stick out and Mm. I think sometimes like recognizing like where there wasn't repair like I think as a therapist now it's not that like ruptures don't happen but it's that the Mm -hmm. repair process is what's super important and I would say like for example like me as a teenager having like completely silent sessions like I'm like okay the therapist could (laughs) have could have done a little you know not that you can make someone talk but like Mm -hmm. they could have been like what music are you listening to? You know, like if I was like finding ways to like build that rapport because clearly I was not comfortable talking. And I think it's interesting how those experiences like impact me now where like with my current therapist, we have like a, like my brain will, will probably, you know, thinking of dissociation stuff, but my brain will just like go blank. Like, you know, when as therapists were like, oh, like what's on your mind or Mm -hmm. what's coming up? Mm -hmm. And I would literally be like, literally nothing. Like there's not a thought in my brain. And so we'll we'll check in of being like, oh, yeah, I ha- would have that experience mm-hmm. where I would like just be silent, didn't have anything to think of or would have something to say and just felt like I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so I like can use that now of like <laughs> my therapist will be like, is this a brain empty moment or is this a like your yes. reflecting moment? And I'll be like brain empty. And we're like, OK, so like, right. let's, you know, adjust. But uh, yeah, I think just like recognizing that like when you're working with teenagers, like you better have a have that. You got to have a deck of Uno <laughs> in there in your. Yes, exactly. Like <laughs> you got to have something to connect with them because mm-hmm. that silence, like we know that silence can be really helpful. But in those instances, you know, mm-hmm. it really, really wasn't. So, yeah. you know, just just recognizing those things. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm curious because I've got a lot of new therapists that listen to this podcast and I'm I'm sure a lot of them are thinking well what do you what do you do then when the client's yeah, head is like yeah. so like what works for you give us an example of where you go next in your own therapy when your mind blanks out yeah sometimes it is just like like checking in with like okay is mind blank because of like a, t- a trigger like it's something mm-hmm. like my brain is like mm, we're not ready to talk about that and so we might check in of like okay does that feel like too tender right now and we don't need to mm-hmm. you know talk about it it could be sometimes if it's like mind blank I also have ADHD so like sometimes it's like mind blank I got distracted by something and so sometimes that mm-hmm. might be okay is it helpful for us to like for me to reiterate what I just said or what we just were talking about and then that, that might make me think of something mm-hmm. but also yeah sometimes it is just like okay that that happened and like we can talk about something else Mm -hmm. but I think also it's been I think a lot of times that would happen when I felt like I had to say something Mm. like like I was like expect like I was like oh I'm supposed to respond yeah Yeah. it's like when someone is like what's your favorite song and you're like I can't think of any song I've ever listened to yeah right now (laughs) that you asked that question you know sometimes I think it was a little bit like that hold on let me get my Spotify (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so I'm like having that rapport too with my therapist like I think I'm like it's lessened the like okay I know that I can have nothing in my brain and that is okay like that'll be fine you know so right yeah yeah 
Let's talk about neurodivergence for a second because you mentioned that you have ADHD Mm -hmm. because ADHD TikTok is driving me bananas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I want to hear your thoughts on this trend that we have now that we all have ADHD. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think it's interesting because I'm in the camp of I do think self-diagnosis can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think there can be a lot of misinformation, obviously, on TikTok. And, And sometimes not even misinformation but it's like missing nuance like it might be accurate but it's not Mm -hmm. like oh this thing that that is common in folks that have ADHD doesn't mean you have it like if you relate to it doesn't mean you have it but you know like the way that I kind of have talked to it with clients because I'll have clients bring in TikToks and things for various things and it's like this is good information like what are you relating to in this and like can we talk about that experience and whether or not it is going to be you know attached to a diagnosis at some point like Mm -hmm. I want to validate that that experience is something you're you're experiencing and then we can talk about like okay yeah like uh, I remember I made a video on TikTok one time kind of about this of you know I think some therapists can be really dismissive of it and I think that makes clients really Mm -hmm. frustrated because they're like well this is something I relate to and I'm like curious about it and so it's like Mm -hmm. you know just describing like okay if someone is talking about a certain symptom that could be a symptom that is for a variety of reasons it could Mm -hmm. be trouble concentrating because you're depressed it could be trouble trouble Mm -hmm. concentrating because you have anxiety it could be because of ADHD Mm -hmm. you know and Mm so kind of taking a step back of like it's important to that we recognize what is the thing you're relating to Mm -hmm. but then we have to put it in context of yeah all of these things I was I was late diagnosed with ADHD so it was interesting actually because I feel like I would see things about ADHD and I was like huh okay like and I remember actually I went to I think the story is so funny. So I went to a, I just moved to Chicago and was trying to find a new medication provider just to continue. Like, I was like, I don't need anything different. Like I've been on the same medications, like just need someone to continue. Mm -hmm. So I go and see this psychiatrist and I'm like, okay, I already have a bunch of diagnoses. They're like, okay, what? I'm like, okay, well, do you want the ones that like are current or like the history of things, you know, like, and so, you know, I give my whole (laughs) laundry list of things and then she does like the you know the tests for each of those and I was like I'm not gonna fit the criteria Mm. because I'm not currently in a depressive episode you know like not currently in a depressive episode I do have depression but you know exactly and so she does all these things and you know we've like a what a 45 minute you know meeting and at the end of it she's like I actually don't think you have any of these I think you have really complex ADHD and I was like "Um, (laughs) I was like I am I came in here being like I've got my meds I've got my diagnoses like I mean I don't think that was the best way to to go about that information with a new provider yeah yeah, I just saw you and I have years and years of Mm -hmm. experience in mental health treatment and you're met me for 45 minutes and you're like all of that's wrong here's what you have Mm -hmm. and so I was really upset and I remember leaving and (laughs) calling my dad crying being like I don't like I don't know I just trying to get my money so it's holding and then months later that I just kept thinking about Uh it like I just kept being like no one's ever mentioned that to me Mm. and again I had been in therapy very long time like Mm -hmm. I've been in a lot of different treatment no one has ever brought up ADHD and yeah I just kept thinking about it more and more and I knew some people who had it and I started reading more about it I was like maybe I should look into this. So I ended up talking to the psychiatrist that I had when I was living in Baltimore, because mm. I had been seeing her for like several years in college. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it. And she was like, 
I am sorry that I missed this. Like, I Aww. think you're right. Like, I think that this is ADHD. They apologized. Um, they did, yeah, which was which was really nice of, like, just acknowledging That's that. Beautiful. like Because I was really frustrated, like, to think about mm. that it had been, like, you know, years and years and being like, how did no one, mm. <laughs> how did no one ever catch this? And thinking about how different things might have been if I had known that I was neurodivergent mm-hmm. and the things that you know, or just being ascribed to like, oh, it's because you're depressed or oh, it's because, mm-hmm. you know, you're anxious or whatever. And so, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of see those like both sides of like, there are things that pe- that would have been explained by ADHD um, mm-hmm. that weren't, but also like there are can be the opposite just as true. Like the people saying, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this probably is ADHD, but it could be something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what I find problematic, and it's not just clients that do this, but I think therapists too, is blaming whatever like behavior or process on the diagnosis instead of recognizing that we have agency. Like I have depression, I have anxiety, I have a trauma history but that doesn't mean I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I find people being like, I just want this. Like, I mean, I, I've had supervisees who will say, yeah, I have a client that like just wants me to write them a letter so that they can like get out of going to class or something. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, no, you can't. No, that's not what a diagnosis yeah. is for. <laughs> yeah. And that's where like, I think like discussions about like, yeah, like about accommodations of like, yeah. what is, yeah, yeah, we absolutely can get accommodations. But like, mm-hmm. was it that? Yeah, I don't have to show up to class. No, but no, I did right. get a 15 minute grace period yes, that like, right. I wouldn't be considered late, you know, mm-hmm. whereas like, if, you know, like a lot of times in school, it's like, if you're late, more than mm-hmm. five minutes, a couple times that counts as an absence, and then you're only allowed to be absent, like, three times. And it's like, okay, right. if you've got let alone mental health stuff, but also I have chronic illness. It's like if all of those things, I'm like, right. oh, this is not accessible to me. So like sometimes it's finding that like what mm-hmm. accommodations will allow me to be able to show up and like I'm mm-hmm. getting that support that I need, but it's not like it, if I was just allowed to miss class, like a lot of times I probably wouldn't have gotten out of bed. Like, you know, and so it's like needing right. some of that structure, some of that accountability right, while right. also getting the accommodation, getting the the support I need in order to be successful. Yeah. Well, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on ableism in, in general, because that's it's something that as a professor, truly I hadn't mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about how because I really did well in the Eurocentric education system. Mm-hmm. And so it literally did not occur to me that everyone can't show up on time. Yeah. Everyone can't turn in their papers on time. Yeah. And so I have really, really struggled with how to, because I, I think that being a therapist is a privilege. And so mm-hmm. I do think that my students need to show up in a certain way that I can trust they're going to care for other people. And yet at the same time, I want to make sure I am making room and making accommodations for people who don't show up like me in an educational setting. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's I think it's such an important topic because it, it it does feel kind of silly sometimes when I think about how how much ableism is in the mental health field yeah. when we're working with people who are disabled, like, right, you know, like right. a lot of people who are disabled. And so mm-hmm. this is where I kind of feel too. It's like, you know, we have the wounded healer terminology and then there's like impaired professionals. Mm-hmm. Like there's just like all this terminology that's like, you know, trying to figure out like what, you know, we obviously need to have certain capabilities and skills in order to like do this work yeah. and show up. And also that might look different for people. Yeah. So like, I think of like thinking about time, like most of my clients like know that 
I'm going to be on online within five minutes of our appointment time. Mm-hmm. I will always add the, fi- you know, like, it's like mm-hmm. not a, like you lose those five minutes. It's yeah. like, yeah, we have, you know, doctors show up whenever the hell they want. Yeah, they do. Having a five minute, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, within the five minutes we get started. Mm-hmm. And if a client has struggles with that, then we're like, okay, we'll start our session at 205, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or we'll start a session five minutes mm-hmm. in. So that I'm still, it's still accommodating my, like, I could struggle to be there Mm -hmm. on that dot. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, is that grace for being, for being human. And so, Mm -hmm. but I think ableism, I think in education, I think a lot of people don't realize they can get accommodations, especially Mm -hmm. for mental health stuff. Like they don't, they don't think of that as a disability, but for a lot of folks it is. And so once I got my ADHD diagnosis, I did go and get accommodations and you know and and a lot of times that you get a letter you sit down with your professor and we would talk about like okay what is this going to look like for us and so we decide okay if I get extensions on things when do I tell you that I need the extension is it okay for it to be you know a couple days before do Mm -hmm. I need to let you know you know and and they can ask me like what usually happens for you and like how would that you know Mm -hmm, so I think mm -hmm. a lot of it is just collaborating on it and making sure that the student, you know, mm-hmm. feels safe to talk to you about it. Because right. what happens is, and I think especially with ADHD, we know shame is a huge part of ADHD and like that internalized shame about mm-hmm. whatever, you know, symptoms and things. And so that shame could keep me from talking to a professor about it because I am internalizing yeah. I'm bad because I can't get to class on time. Yeah. And they're going to be mad at me that I can't versus mm-hmm. being like, hey, this is something I struggle with. How can we how can you support me to like, right. you know, that we can make this work because we do need disabled therapists, yep. you know, like my own therapist has chronic illness as well. And that's been like invaluable yeah. to me as I've been navigating a lot of chronic health stuff and being able to have that modeled to me of how to be a therapist, you know, with lived experience, how to be a therapist who has chronic health issues, because we need diversity. And I think a lot of times we think we forget about ability when it comes yeah. to diversity, yeah. you know, like I might need a lower caseload number and I'm still full time mm-hmm. because it takes me longer than a neurotypical or non-disabled therapist that doesn't make me not as good of a therapist mm-hmm. and I have a lot of clients who have mm-hmm. chronic health stuff and so mm-hmm. like being able to model that for them too like we can be in these professions we can do these things mm-hmm. we just need support yeah yeah well there's so much there what do I want to say first when you were talking about the shame that can get in the way of like mm-hmm. talking to your professor so this is where power comes in, right? And I think yeah. about, I mean, I'm going to toot my own horn here, but I think I'm a pretty fucking cool professor. Like, let's mm-hmm. be honest. I'm sure. I'm cool. <laughs> I'm cool as fuck. And it's funny that, I mean, I, I don't think that there is anything else that I could do to create a safer space. Mm-hmm. Like, no space is safe. I'm in for brave spaces because we're yes. going to have hard conversations. Mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge you because that's my job. But I really, I mean, I couldn't be more chill. And yeah. what I've done with the students now is I say, like, tell me what makes you feel respected. And I'm going to tell you what mm. makes me feel respected. And what makes me yeah. feel respected is communication. Yeah. So when you were saying like collaboration, that's mm. what I'm asking. Yeah. I'm asking for students, just tell me. And like this last semester, I had a student who just like, didn't turn in a paper and then just didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like mm-hmm. that part, because I, I also try to prepare them for the working world mm-hmm. and like saying that like that's that could get you fired. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's, mm-hmm. that's a no call, no show. Right. And in, in mm-hmm. terms of coming mm-hmm. to work. So 
Where is the responsibility, right? Because as a person with more power as the professor, I do take a lot of that responsibility in trying to create that space. What more do you think needs to be done for people who are shaming themselves to feel like they can come forward? Is it a system change or like Mm. what? What's up? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I wonder if obviously like every every person's different, but I think it could even just be naming that. You know, like we could be like, yeah, come to me. But it, we can even name like, hey, I know it can be really hard to come mm-hmm. to your professor mm-hmm. and like you might feel shame about it. But like, I truly want mm-hmm. to support you. And so and also too, I think telling people like it doesn't have to be at like a crisis level before you tell me like I right. accommodate, which like <laughs> is true for so many things. But I think yeah. especially it's like they might have been like, yeah, I can write this paper. And then all of a sudden the week before they're like, yeah. I can't do this and panic yes. and not you know, where it's like, okay, even if like, Mm -hmm. how can we build in more or build in more check-ins or Mm -hmm. being like, hey, I just want to, this paper's coming up. Like if anyone is concerned, whatever, like, let me know, we can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, just like having avenues for that. And, and I think even just sometimes like, yeah, explicitly sort of naming Mm -hmm. that you get that that piece can come up and that like people can come to you even if they like one thing that helped me was being like even if I don't I might not need the extension mm-hmm. or I might not need that specific accommodation mm-hmm. having it in place is helpful yeah. so being like okay even if I'm a little bit like I'm a little concerned I'm not gonna be able to get this mm-hmm. paper in on time cannot in advance I'm gonna be like can I have so yeah. and it might just be like building that skill of like asking for that support mm-hmm. ahead of time because we don't need to wait until it's like yeah. right before and then you're like, I'm screwed. Right. <laughs> like, and I've made a mistake and I'm in a shame spiral right. and I'm just going to avoid, you know, right. so right. But there is only so much you can do, too. Yeah. you know, like there's yeah. ways you can support. And also mm-hmm. it is also, you know, people need to take you up on that. Right. Well, I'm thinking about the challenge of teaching online. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think my because I just teach in the addiction track and I think that's going to stay online and I can only see so much. Yeah. Because like if I were in person, I would know which student is struggling because I would Mm -hmm. see them check out or like whatever. Yeah. But when they're on Zoom and they just turn their camera off, I don't know if they're just like going to pee, getting a snack, Mm -hmm. or they're like having a mental breakdown, right? Yeah. Or mentee B, as we like to say. Mentee B, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's so true. And I think is interesting like how virtual has shifted, you know, things and- Mm -hmm in a lot of ways that can be helpful, but in a lot of ways that also lose yeah. some of that information. And I think also I wonder how the virtual can impact like building that relationship with a professor of like you're not in that mm-hmm. space, you know, with them. And mm-hmm. and I think about that as a therapist too, of like working virtually, building yeah. rapport, like right. you know, it it is interesting doing it where we're just on screens. Mm-hmm. Well and I think too, I mean, our conversation now is making me think that what I want to put forward, because I've been talking about mutual respect, but I want to put forward that I want to build a relationship with you individually mm-hmm. and as a class. And yeah. I'm not the best professor, but I'm different than the academic professors mm-hmm. in that my focus is all clinical. That's all I'm there for. I'm an adjunct, you know, and so I don't think they believe me. Mm-hmm. I usually feel like the first class, there's always one or two that are like obsessed with me and like, yes, yes, I love you. Oh my God. And they're like really picking mm-hmm. up what I'm putting down. And then the rest of them are like either suspicious that I'm like full of shit or they're just mm-hmm. like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I want, and you know, talking about having more disabled therapists, having more queer 
teachers and professors mm-hmm. and and people of color that are professors. Yep. And I wish that academia could shift, but it's never going to. But the more adjuncts that are hired, uh, hopefully mm-hmm. there's more well-rounded education that's happening yeah. in these schools. Yeah. And I think virtual, you know, the pandemic, I think, obviously brought up disability a lot. Not only mm-hmm. that COVID is a mass disabling event for people, but also you know, I know in our program, because I graduated into the pandemic, um, graduated in May of 2020. So that last couple months of my program Mm -hmm. was just a sudden shift of like, oh, we're actually all online now, your internship's over, we're just gonna get through these three months, and then you're done, you know, and so but I remember in our program, we talked a lot about like frustration over um, accessibility and talked about like, Mm -hmm. okay, can we incorporate virtual of like, Mm -hmm. If I am such high pain, I can't get downtown to go to school, but I can join class on Zoom. Can we do that? And that's, I'm still in class. I'm still Mm -hmm. here. I'm still present. I'm Mm -hmm. still listening. And a lot of times the answer was like, no, we just can't really do that. And then COVID happened and everything transitioned into virtual. And a lot of parts are still virtual. And we were like, no, you did have it. You just didn't want to put in that work or or weren't able Mm -hmm. to do the effort, you know, Mm -hmm. in order to do it. But it did give us an example of like, well, that actually was possible, you know, and that is a way of like, I do value in person. Like I would not have wanted to do a fully virtual Mm -mm. therapy program. Like Mm -mm. that's a whole other thing. But like to make it accessible, like if it is an issue sometimes for me to get to class or, you know, anyone to get to class, can that be an option of like, Mm -hmm. versus being like, well, you just miss out because you can't physically come to to class that day, you know? And then think about, you know, with COVID, with being sick of like, how many times are students coming to class and they've got a cold or something, you Mm -hmm. know? And then it's like people Mm -hmm. getting, it's like, if we can like have built in methods of like, how can this Mm -hmm. be accessible? If there's certain classes where that doesn't really work because of whatever the format, that's different. But like, I think about like our field work supervision class, like Mm -hmm. I can join that, you know, like we're we're still here. We still, you still know me. And one time we did do that actually for one of my professors open to it, not for Mm -hmm. me, but one of my friends had broken her foot or something. And like, it was really hard to get to like anywhere traveling and so we like put her on the big screen of the overhead and and it was very we were like hey like you know and she got to be part of class and so that's cool you know I think that's a good example of like that you know how can we Mm -hmm. how can we adjust and make it more possible for disabled folks whether temporarily disabled Mm -hmm. or, or not like to show up because like we bring value I bring value to that conversation right and the class is missing out by me not being able to be there because we don't have systems in place to make it accessible absolutely yeah yeah well and that lends really beautifully to the you know healer wounded healer questions how do you feel first about the term healer yeah I think it's something that I remember talking about a lot in school. Mm. My program was very social justice oriented. Which and program did the you school do? The Art Institute of Chicago. Of course, okay. Art therapy, <laughs> yeah, okay. art therapy and counseling program. I really wanted to stay at an art school because I went to an art independent art school, the cool. Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. And I was like, I really like art school environment mm-hmm. and really wanted my artist identity to like still be there. Yeah. A lot, there's a lot of art therapy programs where it's kind of like, well, you're just a counselor and then you like also use art sometimes. Right. And like, I was like, no, I'm like an artist mm-hmm, and a therapist mm-hmm. and an art therapist. And so this program really, you know, focused on that. And so I picked it for that and also their values. And so we did talk a lot about the term healer. And I think I've sort of landed on like, I personally don't use it for myself. And I think, I think part of it is like, 
it feels presumptuous a little mm-hmm. bit to be like, I am a healer. Like, yeah, I don't like I and I think like for me, it just doesn't sit great of like I am in the healing work Mm -hmm. but like I don't feel like I heal my clients Mm -hmm. like I'm not like coming in and like providing this magic cure to whatever you know stressing them out or whatever Mm -hmm. they're struggling with I see it more as like I facilitate that so you know I and I I think like that wounded healer there's like the whole archetype so that you know can be a little different but yeah I think I tend to to stray away from from things like that and honestly I think I I'm even thinking of how I like describe my practice and like I will often be like, you know, I strive to create like a safe space or I strive mm-hmm. to, you know, bring anti-oppressive practices. But mm-hmm. like, especially being a white person, especially, you know, for me to be like, yeah, I, it's kind of like when people are like, I'm an ally. And it's like, okay, like, yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. But like, if that is you're walking in, it's like, that's my identity. Yeah. It's like, actually, the marginalized people get to decide whether or not you are, you right. know, actually showing up. So I'm like, right. for me, I don't want to walk and be like, I'm a healer. And then my clients are like, are you though? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I'm more like mm-hmm. in the healing work and also to honor, like, I think, you know, I don't know all the history of the term healer, but like, I often think of like indigenous practices and like mm-hmm. healers and that. And so being like wanting to honor that, like, that is not the work that I do. And mm-hmm. like that term can, can mean something really different, mm-hmm. you know, in different cultures. Yeah, absolutely. So how does wounded healer fit you? Yeah, I think that one, I, I remember when I was researching, like, I actually did my thesis on therapists with lived experience. And that's mm. usually the term that, that I use. Mm, I think I partially that. because when I started doing mental health advocacy work as like a teenager and like late teenager into college, a lot, I was part of like the American Association of Suicidology. And they often use the term lived experience mm. to signify people who have lived experience of suicide and that, you mm-hmm. know, being different than people who've lost someone to suicide, like having, mm-hmm. you know, that lived experience. And I really liked that that term. But I'd heard of wounded healer and I would definitely like, I remember when researching for my thesis, like I would search that term because that's what a lot of things are under. Mm-hmm. A lot of Christianity shit comes up though, which was yeah, like. Yeah, I think, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think it just like, it's such a range. And mm-hmm. I think the archetype, like it makes sense. Like, and I, I appreciate the, the like meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. I think I don't, I don't necessarily use the term for like myself, mm-hmm. but you know, I've attended things like at, at conferences that were like, a session about wounded healers or like or mm-hmm. like things like that but mm-hmm. yeah I think I I tend to use like the term like li- having lived experience mm-hmm. and you know I think it's been that's been such a foundational part to my even to my therapist identity mm-hmm. because I think it's really important that one we acknowledge our lived experience and how that might show up and like being aware of that is super important, you know, so that we're able to like hold space for our clients and like, mm-hmm. you know, and and be able to decipher like when is my lived experience an asset in yeah. this situation? Like, you know, times where I do choose to self-disclose and also mm-hmm. times where I'm not actively self-disclosing, but my lived experience is informing my outlook or my conceptualization or something mm-hmm. and not in a way where it's like, I'm centered, but of a mm-hmm. way of just like, yeah, I, this is how we also access empathy, how we access these mm-hmm. different things. And I do think even just lived experience of being in therapy and like having a range of bad experiences and good ones has helped me a lot with clients of being like, I get that like you might have had not good experiences and like being in the name of like, you're allowed to be uh, suspicious of me. Yeah. Like, you know, of like, and I get that. So I think the term 
can be useful for us to just like finding community, I think, yeah. because a lot of things use that. Because for a while, I think that was really the like, or like only term really. Mm-hmm, but I have mm-hmm. seen some some shifts in like a lot of different ways people people describe it. Well, and every time I have a depressive episode or I'm like real in my trauma or whatever mm-hmm. it is, I'm like, this is what makes me a good therapist because I remember how it feels, mm-hmm. right? Every time I'm yeah. in the depths of despair, in whatever way, I'm like, this is how my clients feel. Do not forget how this feels. Yes. Yeah. I one time went to a talk by like a colleague and friend, Stacey Friedenthal, who does a lot of suicide prevention work mm-hmm. and works with a lot of suicidality and also is a suicide attempt survivor and has lived experience. And she talked about like the difference of like, you know, the, this metaphor of like if the client is like in this hole in the ground and you are standing up on the ground and you're like calling down to them versus like getting Mm -hmm. in there with them you know like being like no we're gonna figure Mm -hmm. this out together Mm -hmm. and I remember really loving that because it actually made me realize that as much as my lived experience I think was helping me in like the theory Mm. I was having a hard time like connecting it with my clients Mm. like I felt a little distant like I was like hesitant to get in the ditch with them because I was like I've been here before and I don't want to get yeah, that's in nasty. it. And so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so realizing mm-hmm. like, oh, but I'm getting in it. I'm actively getting in it. Mm-hmm. I know how to get out. Like we're mm-hmm. going to figure that, mm-hmm. you know, like it is different than when I was in the stitch by myself. Right. You know, and so like being able to hold like, oh, I'm in it in a different role. But it helped me realize like, oh, I was like standing up here calling down to them. Like, yeah, yeah I know it's hard, but like, I don't know, like, I get up versus being like, mm-hmm. yeah, hold on, let me like get in there with you and we'll mm-hmm. like figure this out. And I do think like it can be easy to think my lived experience is like in the past. Like, and I, yeah. and I think that was something I also came to terms with in school yeah. being like, yeah, I've done all this work and I've been in therapy and like, yeah, I have. And also I'm not just like suddenly I have no struggles, you know, or suddenly right. I like never have depression or like, yeah, it's like an active mm-hmm. lived experience. Like I am living right. it just as like my clients are just, you know, I have the privilege of having this education and this training mm-hmm. and skills that I can help people, you know, when they're in it. And I get help from other therapists yeah. when I'm in it too, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think suicide in particular, for a person who hasn't experienced what that feels like to want to die Mm -hmm. from a liability standpoint, it scares the shit out of us. And so there's a distance that's created there because I feel like I'm supposed to keep you alive rather than just looking at like the function of suicide is to end the pain. That's what Mm -hmm. the function is. And remembering like that connection is the thing that heals the pain. Yeah, so if we exactly. crawl in the hole, like, of course, we can't stop a potential client from, you know, deciding mm-hmm. to kill themselves. But making a connection with them is going to be the best shot that we have in Absolutely. supporting them. Yeah, I actually just did a keynote presentation for a suicide prevention conference mm. in Wisconsin. And that was like the main point yeah. of my talk was about like, I work from like a relational cultural mm-hmm. theory and and just like the importance of relationships and for suicidality like we know as really boiled down of like it's pain Mm -hmm. and when we feel like the pain's not going to end the hopelessness and if the connectedness we have doesn't outweigh the pain and hopelessness that's when it increases but if you have that connectedness whether that's to Mm -hmm. other people to your job to your you know Mm -hmm. to your passions like just feeling connected to things that's what keeps us here and so you know thinking of being a therapist, like part of that is that connection. And if clients feel that we are 
terrified or we're scared or we're uncomfortable, that's going to rupture that connection. And and it's understandable. It's obviously feels scary. You know, we're allowed to have feelings, but I think that's where it's so important for like us to have more education on that because we don't get enough of it in grad school. And suicide is something that impacts anyone regardless of their diagnosis. It's not a specific, you know, niche. Like people are like, oh, it's not my niche. I'm like, yes, there is a niche if someone Mm -hmm. is like coming to therapy for that. But at any point, any of your clients could have that. And so it's like, we need that education. We need to know what resources that are not carceral, that are not just mm-hmm. hospitalization, the minute someone, you know, says they're having suicidal thoughts. And so I've done a lot of like work also trying to, like I've done illustrations of like, mm. it is a spectrum. Like yes. it is not like the response to someone being like, yeah, I want to die. And the response to someone like, I'm going to kill myself this way at this time. Yep. Very different, yep. you know, yep. and a lot, but a lot of therapists just, it's all the same. They're like, it, oh, it's all You panic, should be hospitalized. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And mm-hmm. that can do a lot more harm, actually. So and so, harm. you know, well, I always give this spiel with my therapist, or my, with my therapist, with my, <laughs> with my clients when I'm, you know, going over confidentiality and all of that of like suicidal thoughts. Like, I will not panic. Yep. We can talk about that. Yep. This is when hospitalization comes into play. This yes. is when, yes. you know, here is how we will collaborate on a safety plan. And mm-hmm. that safety plan will include things that are have nothing to do with like the mental health system even. Like yeah. it's people, it's places, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah. And I do think my lived experience, I, you know, I don't often like share in session with clients, but like you can find online that I'm a suicide attempt survivor. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that experience definitely informs my work. And I think allows me some more room for working. I don't yeah. like, Ha- always have a ton of clients who experience suicidality and then sometimes I'll have a bunch at once you mm-hmm. know but I think it allows me to like be able to enter into those conversations with them and understand the vast spectrum and yeah. and one thing my therapist does with me that has really helped normalize because I think a lot of times I'd feel like shame over still having suicidal thoughts sometimes oh, really? it was like you're mm. not allowed to have them because you're a therapist mm. and she's like no that's a neural pathway in your yes. brain that hasn't formed from when you were younger and so your brain is going to think of that Mm -hmm. when overwhelmed and I was like oh and I've used that with clients and it's helped them a lot just seeing like yeah that has been formed in your brain and so that is a pathway that is there and we're finding other ones but like Mm -hmm. it's gonna come up and also it can just be a signal of oh if that's coming up that means something's something's off like what is going on that's not feeling right or good or feeling trapped you know and so looking at it as just information of like yes that's a signal what do we do with that (laughs) my heart is fluttering because I mean that's my exact experience because I I didn't re I didn't really put all the pieces together because I never attempted suicide but I was chronically suicidal as a child Mm -hmm. and then when I first really like had all of the awareness online and had those feelings as an adult, I was like, oh, and it was after like a family thing. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is why I felt this way my entire childhood. And then since then I use it as a, I know that I've worked myself into an unworkable situation that I feel there's Mm -hmm. no way out of when I start to feel like I want to die. And so then that's just an indicator to me that I need to make a major change or I need to do something really serious to help myself. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. That it's a signal that something needs to change. I think that's really shifted how I've how I think about suicidality yeah. for myself, but also with clients. And I can yes. see how it has helped them, which I always love when like, 
<laughs> but my therapist will tell me something and I'm like, they're like the grand therapist yeah, to yeah, my yeah, clients. Yeah. And I'm like, when I'm like, pa- I feel like it's like, you're like passing on yes, knowledge yes. of like, like their therapist told them and uh-huh, then they told me uh-huh. and then I'm telling my clients yeah. and then I have therapist clients and I'm like, who knows, maybe they tell their, you know, yeah. their clients and it, it also feels like a beautiful, like almost like an intergenerational like, thing of like that passing down. And we're reparenting each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, like I know my therapist has lived experience and and when they shared that with me, because it, you know, it was relevant to what we were talking about, mm-hmm. it was so helpful. And so it also helped me to like be like, yeah, like this can be really beneficial to people. And like, especially I think to therapists, like yeah. my like clients I have who are therapists, like getting to model, like, yes. yeah, here's what it's like for me to be a therapist with lived experience yep. and processing that experience for them too. Yeah. Well, and speaking of things that help, let's see if I can get a good like is that a good sound of the book? This is what the book sounds like. Some ASMR. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. I don't even, I don't know. I just talk really softly, right? Is that right? <laughs> okay, that's creepy. You have a book and I don't want to say you wrote a book because you drew a book. You like, yeah. you you birthed a book. I did. I mean, if you've ever seen Elisa's art, you know that this is going to be a colorful, beautiful, queer, neurodivergent like mm-hmm. thing that popped out of your creative womb. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. The Big Feeling Survival Guide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been working on it for so long. It feels very surreal for it to be out in the world. Yeah, I had a publisher reach out to me because I had made actually a I'd self-published like a workbook Mm. for my undergrad thesis project. And I did like a Kickstarter and I'd gotten Mm. some prints of it, but I like hadn't ordered it in a while, but somehow they got a copy of it and, you know, were following me on, on Instagram Mm -hmm. and they were like, have you ever thought about writing another book? And I was like, maybe. And so, yeah, we, we connected about it and, and it uses some of the same, like the format of it being organized by emotions Mm. is the same for my self-published book, but this one, it's like kind of cool to see them next to each other because that Mm. one was before I really started illustrating a lot. Hmm. I wasn't really illustrating in undergrad actually as much. And so that one was really more just like the hand lettering of the prompts and and there were drawings in it, but they just are not as much of my style that is honed Mm. now of like, and it also wasn't in color. And so it's really Mm. interesting to see that just like my artistic growth too. But but yeah, I've always loved DBT. I did DBT as a teenager and it helped me a lot with just like navigating like a lot of big feelings. And I loved art therapy too. And I, and I felt like you know, DBT had so many worksheets and so many skills and Mm -hmm. all these things. And I was like, I feel like these lend itself really well to like having a more creative way of engaging with the skills. And so I had done, I did a paper on it in undergrad. Mm. Now I'm remembering. (laughs) So I did some research about like the, the combination of DBT and there is a book for art therapists Mm. of like prompts based on DBT but no like workbooks or anything and so Mm. I remember as a teenager I'd like go to the self-help section of Barnes and Noble and I'd like sit on the floor and I'd like just look through all the books and I was like these are all so boring (laughs) like I was like I wanted something to help and like be able to work on outside of therapy but like I just would get one and I'd be like "Mm," like just so much writing it's all these blocks of text right and then there were creative workbooks that I liked but they weren't clinical they just were like fun little art things and so I was like okay can we like get one that's both Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's where kind of where that like idea has just sat with me for a long time of like Mm. wanting that combination so yeah it felt really special to get to like really translate dbt skills into these 
like I always joke with my clients, they they know me as like I'll I'll have these like metaphors that just randomly <laughs> yeah. come into my brain. I think part of that is I mean, as being a therapist in general, but I think especially being an art therapist, we work yeah, a lot with metaphors. Yeah. So I just am constantly think like clients will like say something to me. I'm like, hmm, that makes me think, and it'll be like the most random metaphor. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, stay with me, yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. always like chuckle, and they're like, okay, yeah, I'll bring it back. Um, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I promise this is related. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, but yeah. it kind of felt like a similar process if I'd like look at the DBT skill, and then I'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. what sort of like way can I do this? So like. For the describe skill, I have you design a book cover. So like the metaphor of being like, you know, a book cover is describing the book, like write about the emotion, Mm -hmm. you know, make an image to represent that emotion. And so just using these like ideas and motives, Mm -hmm. like to have a creative prompt that is also teaching you the skill. And I want people to be able to use it whether they know DBT or they don't Mm -hmm. or whether they're in therapy or they're not and try to give enough information, but not like such an overwhelming amount. Like it's not like the DBT handbook where like yeah. that's where you'll learn all of the stuff about the skill. Right. This is like a little like taste of like, here's how you could use this. Mm-hmm. If this is helpful to you, definitely go learn more and definitely go like dive mm-hmm. deeper into into that work. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. Thank you. And I, I mean, I don't even know you enough to say I'm proud of you, but like birthing something like this is such a labor. I'm using a lot of like very yeah. pregnancy terms. I don't know why. I'm not. <laughs> I don't want one. No, thank you. But it's just it's beautiful, and I'm proud of you. I hope that doesn't feel thank like you. patronizing no, at all. It I'm definitely proud of myself, and Good. it's helpful too to like step up and be like, oh yeah, I did do that. Yeah, I did publish a book. Right? You know, I did write and and illustrate this. Well, and I think about the kiddo who wanted to die, and mm-hmm. how proud that kiddo is of you yeah yeah and I I think like when writing the like the acknowledgments and the intro and like Mm -hmm. all of that I definitely was yeah thinking about that a lot because also it was like their idea like me being a teenager being like I really want something that's both like and to like years later be like all right well no one beat it so I'm doing it (laughs) you know and like the the beauty Mm -hmm. in that and of like dedicating the book to me and to everyone who has big feelings and like I think I do thank myself in the acknowledgments of like, mm. thank you to my younger, you know, self for getting me here, mm. you know, even though sometimes she tried really hard to not, right. <laughs> um, right. but being, yeah, being grateful for, you know, for that path and that journey, because yeah. I wouldn't be making this, or, you know, if, if I didn't have those experiences. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, tell people how they can find you, where they can find you, all the things. Yeah, totally. Well, most things are just my full name, Elise Wuriani. Um, on Instagram, first and last name, you can find me on there. And same with TikTok, same with Twitter, all the social media. Pretty oh, much. you're still on the you're still on the Twitters, eh? I I am. <laughs> I don't honestly though. <laughs> I'm always like. Twitter, I occasionally talk about mental health. Honestly, it's mostly tweets about Paramore because I'm a big Paramore fan. Really? And that's where okay. the Paramore fan community is. So if you look I at see. Them, very different vibes than my, than my Instagram. That's funny. But yeah, and then my website is just elisevariani.com. And then you can learn more about, about my work and also my, my online shop to get some stickers and things. Get those cutie stickers. So, well, now I'm thinking that you and I must go to karaoke and do some misery business. Yes. Okay. Let's make that happen. (laughs) You know, we could like make a benefit or something. I'm sure there's something we could do. And it's just like all Paramore songs. That I would be down. (laughs) I'm down for most things. Okay. They've been, and it's my younger, it's a way for me to connect to younger me too. They've been my favorite band since I was like, 12 
maybe um, and feel like their music kind of grew with me and so I just think also another way of like the power of like expressive medium Mm -hmm. you know like whether it's art music Mm -hmm. writing Mm -hmm. all of those yeah you can always catch me singing some paramore at karaoke well (laughs) then I'll see you there yeah (laughs) perfect amazing well thank you so much I'm so glad we finally because I reached out to you like two years ago I think and and then I was like oh yeah I forgot I should like check in again and it was the right time it was I'm really glad you did because yeah. I yeah thanks to the ADHD and pandemic sometimes yeah. things just I went away it. but I feel yeah. like good timing yeah so thank you so much for reaching back out and and that we made time to do this absolutely absolutely thank you thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today to find out more about today's guest you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast you can find Sarah at at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.